The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. Hello again, Internet Fitness family. This is the Fitness Reborn podcast. I'm Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training. And my guest this morning is Dr. Fred Moss. Dr. Fred Moss is a psychiatrist, the founder of Welcome to Humanity, an author, a podcaster himself, a teacher, and a transformational coach. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Moss. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. You can call me either Dr. Fred or Fred. I'll tell you a little bit about why that name has changed over the conversation today. Gotcha. Gotcha. Will do. All right. Well, I mean, let's just kick it off right there. So how has the name Dr. Fred or Dr. Moss changed in the time? Yeah. So um, I have been really involved in the essence of uh, mental health since as far back as I can remember. I was called on in high school, as some of us are, you know, sort of be the friend who listened to all of my other friends going through whatever issues they had. And even prior to that, I was born to a family that was in disarray and chaos. I had two older brothers, 10 and 14 years older than me, um, when I arrived. And there was trouble in the family, I'm told. And my job was to bring health to an otherwise chaotic situation. And the way I did that was I became the bundle of joy that the family was looking for. And, you know, I was like the um, the one who had the big smile. I had early, uh, I was, I could make people laugh. I was. Um, you know, precocious. They taught me how to read and write before uh, kindergarten, and I was doing math before kindergarten started. And so I kind of got uh, disconnected from the general theme of what it means to be uh, a kid in that time. And, but I really knew that I loved communication, and that's where the essence of the mental health part of me really began to grow. I knew that I lo loved watching my brothers and my parents speak, and I wanted to speak like them. I wanted to learn how to be a communicator. And um, I really have learned over time that communication is the essence of healing for all conditions of all types everywhere. And so, you know, as time went on, I thought I would learn that in school, but I did not, of course. You know, as, uh, as junior high came, it was even less likely to communicate openly. Discourse was not encouraged in high school. And so I went to the University of Michigan hoping that I would learn how to communicate there. You know, Ann Arbor, after all, might be the place. And when I got there, I, it was same same nonsense. Uh, the school classrooms wasn't a place to learn to communicate. But I knew that that's where health emanated from, was in the connection with other human beings. I eventually dropped out and then was called back and, you know, took on a, a new industry that um, was just coming into being. And University of Michigan had the only access to it because it had the only computer in all of Michigan. And this was computer science at the time. And uh, my idea was that I would, you know, learn how to do this new industry and maybe come up with a trade. But I didn't like computers either. I dropped out and eventually got this job at a uh, adolescent, at a state facility, a state mental health facility for adolescent boys. And I was a child care worker there. And there I finally, again, learned how to communicate effectively with these kids that were only like five or seven years younger than me. And in uh, communicating effectively, they healed, I healed, everyone healed. The idea was to just get them for exactly who they were. Eventually, I realized that I, the thing I hated about that job was psychiatry. 
I hated the way psychiatrists were treating those kids. I hated that we would call a psychiatrist if Timmy was up too late or Jimmy and Johnny had gotten in a fight and he would come down and talk to the child for maybe five seconds and talk to us for another five seconds and then write an order. And then we'd have to go retrieve the child and hold them down and jam them full of some psychiatric medicines, you know, with a, with a syringe, some sort of adult grade antipsychotic uh, sedative medicine, which by the way is continuing to, uh, be this name of the game, even to this very day in many psychiatric hospitals around the country. I really hated that aspect of it and thought that I could go into the field and bring communication where it belongs. So I eventually made a decision to go back a third time to college, finish my degree, and then become a doctor. And that was the whole idea was that I would become a doctor and then become a psychiatrist. My brother was already a psychiatrist. My brother, 14 years older than me. And, um, I knew that it could be done, so that's what I did. And I went to uh, Northwestern Medical School in Chicago, Illinois, where I loved. I learned how to communicate in the streets of Chicago, not in medical school. Um, I was there from 1984 to 1988. Uh, it was a good time to be in Chicago. Michael Jordan had arrived in 1984, and so we had a, we had a great time going to Chicago Stadium 16 times a year. I had season tickets for the Bulls as I was going through medical school. And it was super fun to watch Michael grow and to watch Chicago grow and to learn in the streets. And um, that's where I really got the essence of who I became as a mental health worker. And I continued to do the sideline job of being a mental health worker in Chicago and um, eventually graduated and then got my residency. And then I was Dr. Moss. And as Dr. Moss, when released, I was released to a industry that was asking me to do the things that I just despised. Uh, the industry had shifted because in 87, Prozac was introduced to the world. And so psychiatrists really got typecasted into being diagnosers and medicators. And so there I was having sunken costs, uh, substantial sunken costs and becoming a doctor. And now I was actually diagnosing and medicating, even though that was the thing I went into the field learning, hoping to not have to do at all. So I lived pretty duplicitously for many years I, uh, where I knew that each time I was medicating, it was kind of hurting my soul. It, you know, I took an oath to do no harm, and I wasn't positive every time I gave these people medicines that I wasn't doing harm. And so for the next 15 or so, 20 years, I um, saw thousands, tens of thousands of patients as Dr. Moss, and eventually it got to be too much for my heart and soul, and I decided that I would start doing something different. So in 2006, I started taking people off of medicine, which was an unheard of practice in psychiatry. We were never taught how to take people off medicine, only how to add, increase, or change medicine, and to keep those diagnoses in place. But I started realizing that some of my less severe, you know, less risky clients uh, could come off medicine, and I took them off, and sure enough, they got better, often way better, reliably better without their medicines. And oftentimes their, their diagnosis actually disappeared. Now I started doing a different practice at that time. Again, starting to work with addicts. I was doing more work in the streets. I was doing alcoholic work. I was doing work with Suboxone, which is the replacement for methadone um, at the time. And uh, really started realizing that taking people off of medicine was the way that I wanted to go. So I became Dr. Fred because that was a much more streetwise, much more affectionate, much more steady, grounded name to take on than Dr. Moss, which for me 
represented me in a white coat and a stethoscope wrapped around my neck and all that. This was Dr. Fred being like with the people, I suppose. And that's how I, that's where the shift came, where I stopped being a doctor and started being a healer. Now, I gave up in my practice in Cincinnati um, over the next several years because I took almost everybody off of medicine and they all got better. And I, my practice no longer was as large as it used to be. And I began to do doctor work by traveling around the country called the locum tenens. And there I was Dr. Fred as well. And I got licenses in multiple states and began to see that this psychiatry thing was how it goes everywhere. It was no different in Cincinnati than it was in Chicago or than California or in Michigan or Indiana or North Carolina, other places where I worked. And I did, began to do telepsychiatry as well, long before it became the gold standard. And I began to teach how to do telepsychiatry because I could see that the writing was on the wall, that this was a match made in heaven, sort of a chocolate and peanut butter match that was fantastic uh, for psychiatry. And so the idea of video um, therapy really became obviously a way that the future was going to go. And I taught a course called Mastering Telepsychiatry to many people who, with, um, you know, with uh, great testimonials, it was a fun course to teach. Eventually, I, be, I re picked up a name called, a moniker called The Undoctor. A friend of mine gave me that because what I was doing was undiagnosing, unmedicating, and then undoctrinating people. My idea was to pull people out of the system that wasn't making them better or to actually give them one last exit where they wouldn't have to go into the default system and get a uh, treatment that was by default not geared towards their healing, but geared towards perpetuation of the conditions that, that was marketed to treat. And so I, as the undoctor, I continued to be somebody who um, pulled people off of medicine and gave them different directions to consider as far as the whole healing process. Many of those things I'm sure you speak to and you have guests, your guests speak to inside of this podcast. Other ways to heal that don't include um, taking on a disempowering diagnosis and eating medication as a way of managing things. So as Dr. Fred, I began to do other things as well. Seeing that communication was eff effectively the most important prerequisite for healing, I began to be a podcaster and I began being a podcast guest. And I uh, invented a, or I created Welcome to Humanity at the time. And Welcome to Humanity seemed like an overarching umbrella that covered everything. The whole idea of every experience that we have as a human, including the painful ones, the unspeakable ones, the treacherous ones. The ones that are uncomfortable, that are miserable, those are all like spectacular human experiences that if taken head on for what they are, can be embraced and continue to enhance what it means to be human, along with the beautiful stuff and the ecstatic stuff, the miraculous stuff, the wonderful things that happen in the world also. And we all know that both of those things happen day to day. And... um so as uh, Welcome to Humanity, I enjoyed podcasting and I created a couple books. I created a book called The Creative Eight, which looked at um, eight different ways to be creative to alleviate what some people think are psychiatric symptoms like art, music, dancing, singing, drama, cooking, writing, gardening. And then a couple more were added, photography and cleaning. And ultimately, there's this one called Service, where if you help people, anybody do anything, your symptoms disappear at that time. So the book was fun to write. And I wrote another book as well called Find Your True Voice, which helps people become uh, authentic with themselves, rediscover what's going on underneath all the mess that we've been served up over time, the um, sort of rust and dust and uh, cobwebs that have had many people turn into people that they aren't 
in order to protect the person that they are, which is just an insane, ludicrous, preposterous way to go through life. But all of us know how to do that. We start telling lies that even we believe, or we don't speak up when we should. So your True Voice technology was developed as well. And the True Voice podcasting course was developed. I taught that to a number of people on how to become a podcaster with your true and authentic voice. I wrote a book called Find Your True Voice as well. And I began to be a keynote speaker and a teacher as well as a transformational coach rather than a conventional psychiatrist. So people would come to me to get their lives put back in order and so that they could get aligned with their true voice and actually effectively deliver it to a world that is eager to receive it. And that's how Dr. Fred became a restorative transformational coach, as well as the writer, facilitator, keynote speaker, and teacher that I am as well. So today, that's what I do. I'm, um, you know, I have a number of one-to-one coaching clients, a number of group clients, and as the undoctor, I do what I can to have people take different routes and when they're feeling uncomfortable psychiatrically and not label themselves in a disempowering way to what they think is wrong with them, but yet that more than likely what they're experiencing is just another um, another component of what it means to be very human in this extremely challenging world. And as Krishnamurthy says, you know, it's no sign of mental health to be well adjusted to an extremely sick society. And we do have a society which we could classify as pretty sick right now. I think you'll agree. And it's very difficult to find our footing. It's okay to have difficulty finding footing. It does not mean that there's something wrong with you. And that's the conversation that I bring forth to my clients and patients at this point. Wow. Well, a whole lot of questions coming to mind right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I kind of want to touch on what you said earlier about, you know, the fact that you became uh, Dr. Fred from being Dr. Moss for so long. And it was a kind of a kind of a uh, schizoid um, existence for a lot of years for you. Um, Now, the fact that you became uh, Dr. Fred as a way of kind of removing you know, the, the white lab coat kind of image of a psychiatrist. Um, do you think that, that, uh, that image of a, of a psychiatrist, of a medical doctor in general, just the white coat is kind of like a, a pretty severe psychological barrier between people, doc, patients and doctors, and it kind of complicates things a lot more. It, I mean, I, 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 I have, I, I have heard ahead. this before. I have heard this kind of thing before where, you know, there's kind of like the white coat syndrome where yeah. people get, and I've noticed this too, because I've noticed my own doctor doesn't really wear the white coat when I see him. He's always just yeah. in his, in his clothes. Um, yeah. Do you think there's anything, do you think there's anything to that? Or that's just kind of like an over, overhyped uh, kind yeah, of syndrome? Yeah, I think that's, I think that the symbol is real. I think, you know, the idea is that there is a barrier between the healer and the healing, the healer and the healed. I think that's a significant barrier that does get in the way of our treatment of people. And I think that you're pointing to something very real when you point to a, um, you know, when you point to uh, the the barrier being something that gets in the way, gets in the way of healing um, honestly, properly, and fully. And it doesn't have to be a white coat per se. I think that's more of an image, you know, than anything else. But the idea is, is that, um, you know, this idea of, that the doctor wears a white coat and the patient like sometimes just wears pajamas or, you know, in the hospital, you just wear like an open, you know, a back, a open back, um, like 
you know, gown. just like yeah. Yeah, a gown, right? And that that's pretty disempowering in its own right. While the doctor comes in with all his tools hanging on his neck, and and uh, it's not a human to human interaction. It's a power gradient developed in a doctor patient relationship that ultimately perpetuates itself. There's no real opportunity to get in many cases to get just to the human to human flat you know flat level ground relationship that us humans have for each other where from where um humanity actually does heal do you think do you think that kind of uh, just kind of happens anyway unconsciously i mean it's just kind of or unconsciously it's like uh i don't know like some doctors whether they really realize it or not they kind of approach a patient or uh an illness from just some sort of you know i guess clinical superiority you know they just kind of like like i said like you know the 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 like the lab coat is a symbol mm-hmm. you know it is a a, sing, a symbol of something that of what you are of what you've accomplished and what you represent um now you think on some level that would be a welcoming symbol you know you're sick you're not feeling well and then so you're there to get help from a professional who you hope will provide you for, with some answers but then it just sort of backfires in some ways like you said you kind of sit there barely clothed in this gown with your back exposed and here in comes in this very professional very clean um maybe very even nice looking person here with all this tools and it's just kind of you know it like you said it's kind of late you're kind of laid bare there and you feel very vulnerable right i think you're bringing up another really great point here uh sean the idea is is that I think that you're bringing up is this uh, clinical superiority thing as if I have something that I'm giving you. Mm. Now, the truth is, I don't really have anything that I'm giving you if I'm going to be a healer. What I have is the human connection. The capacity to heal comes from being gotten, from being heard, from being listened, from being received as who you are and who you're not. That's what people want more than anything is to be actually seen and heard for who they are and who they're not. And that's true across the board in all cultures. So um, if we pretend that what I've got, like you've come to me for help and I've got something that I'm going to take out of my black bag and give to you and then you're going to get the help, then there's a sense of superiority that does get, um, you know, that does get uh, uh, highlighted and it's not a real thing. It's not something that actually creates the kind of healing I'm talking about. So when I say that I went from being a doctor to being a healer, what I think I'm saying is I went from that model to being a model where all I have, all I have here is my humanity to share with you. And I really am a complete um, stand for sharing with you and, and having you share respectfully with me um, is where healing emanates from. So I, when I was uh, reading your press kit here, and I, I think I noticed something here is like there, you know, something about, there is a point where the doctoring has to end and the undoctoring comes in. So are you suggesting that there is maybe a partnership between um, between uh, doctoring and undoctoring? Um, like saying, like, you know, we, we've gone as far as we can with the traditional doctoring. Now we have to do the undoctoring. Did I read that correctly or is that? No, way off. No, I, it's not way off. I don't know that we have, you know, we have society have come as far as we, as far as we have come already with the doctoring and undoctoring is not something that I'm saying other people or other doctors should do. And it may not fit everybody, which I want to make very clear to your listeners, which is the, 
if you've if you're being seen by a doctor now and you're happy with your diagnosis and happy with your treatment, you think it's life saving. You think it couldn't be better. Your life is as good as it's going to get, and you're you know look forward to your monthly visit, and you don't find any trouble with either your medication or your treatment that's being used. By all means, continue doing that, please. So it's not a matter of coming off your meds or this isn't an argument about whether or not what you're doing works or doesn't work. If you're sure that what you're doing works, if you have found anything in life that works, you should keep doing it. I mean, life is hard to negotiate. And if you found something that that you're actually sure is bringing you the best of the best for yourself, then you should keep doing it. What the undoctor does is something that I've learned over time, which is that when I start realizing, like in 2006, that um, that the low risk patients and then the medium risk and even the higher risk patients that I took off medicine actually got reliably better and their symptoms began to disappear. And oftentimes their diagnosis totally dissolved. I learned that being an undoctor was very similar, was very um, congruent with the idea of doing no harm and bringing forth the best care I could. In fact, if you go with that, you can see that oftentimes the diagnosis and the medications or the diagnosis and the treatment really do often perpetuate and even cause the symptoms they're marketed to deal with. And when you really get that that's what's happening here, that the medications and the treatments and frequently the diagnosis are put in place to perpetuate or frequently advance or even cause the symptoms they're marketed to treat then you start realizing that the only intervention that makes any sense is to help people get off that habit trail. Does it really, does it really, is it really meant to do that though? Is it really meant just to exacerbate an already existing problem? That sounds like a, that sounds like almost like a criminal conspiracy. It sounds like a business model. All it really is. That's what all businesses do. Okay. Huh. When you look at, I mean, you're always wanting your customer to return. And that's, well, this, yeah. is, this is just what a business model is. This business model to, to suggest that it's going to heal and never heal is a really good model. You get people to come mm-hmm. in hoping that they're healing. And in fact, all it's, I wish I would have designed a model. It's a great model. <laughs> so is it nefarious in its product, in its, in its, um, you know, in its in, in inception? I'm not saying that necessarily, but I am saying like as a business model, for sure, it brings people back. That's why people line up uh, all every day of the morning, every day in the morning, people are lined up in front of their pharmacies to get their medications. Mm-hmm. You got to, you know, work very hard to get your doctor's appointment. There is no, you know, that's why um, clinics are like, you know, so there's no, there's no hard times in the clinics. Clinics are not closing because there's no business. These things are, this, this model works, um, to really perpetuate the system that's marketed to treat them. Absolutely. And so it, you know, you're asking about intentions. Is there somebody there pulling, you know, pulling levers and yanking on strings to make sure this happens. I don't know that there's any one person there, but ultimately the business model is for sure to perpetuate itself. More so maybe more obviously in the health industry than elsewhere, because you don't get a lot of conditions where you truly heal. That's not really what happens. What happens is you continue to need to come back to get either checked on or get boosted or get upgraded or get the next thing dealt with or get the next you know, condition associated with the condition dealt with. And um, it's, it's a, it's a pretty remarkable business model. It works great. You know, it works great to, for the bottom line, for certain. 
Yeah. I, I, I suppose it does because especially even with like when things like, like Obamacare came around and uh, it was a way to kind of get more coverage to, to more people. But then it was, you know, if you look at it a little bit closer, if you look at the fine print and I'm not necessarily taking a political position on this, but it does require you to become insured in some way. So, you know, it comes as no surprise then that the uh, healthcare industry was backing it as much as they were because it was creating a whole new market share for them. Exactly. Yeah. And the market share, you know, it's again, the healthcare industry in and of itself is doing quite well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, as a, as something to invest in or something to be part of, you can be pretty sure your clinic down the road is not closing this year because of lack of business. That's not happening. <laughs> so, I mean, but we also know that mental health, um, consider mental health, uh, doesn't really get a lot of money thrown at it, right? Like it doesn't get the kind of support. I mean, I've heard this from almost everybody from experts and from people who are not necessarily experts. I mean, it seems to be universally agreed upon that mental health doesn't get the kind of support that it does need. So, I mean, from the, uh, from the state or the federal level, um, it almost, it almost treats it, it's almost as treated as if it's kind of a, you know, an elective issue in some regards mm -hmm. here too. But, but you're saying that it doesn't have any, it has no worry for money at all because it's, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the money that you're talking about would be money to like Medicaid, you know, okay. money to, you know, money to hospitalize, money to make the hospital as nice for these people as in its in environs as as the people who are hospitalized in the other parts of the facility or something. So what I'm saying is that mental health, the essence of mental health isn't about hospitalization or money from the mental health department. The, the essence of mental health is connection. Okay. Period. The essence of mental health is connection. And there, therefore, you can actually be a clinician for your friends and family. All they really want and all you really want when you're not feeling very well, when you're feeling imbalanced or dysfunctional or out of sorts, is to have somebody hear you. You just want to be heard. You just want to be seen for who you are. And it is amazing that when that actually occurs, that's the essence of mental health cure. That's where healing takes place. Now, Mental health perpetuation is a whole different concept. And there's a lot of money that goes into mental health perpetuation. You know, the idea of medications and samples and hospitals and non-for-profit hospitals and profit hospitals per, uh, as alike uh, certainly exists. And yes, it, you can say that that population doesn't get the same kind of subsidies that some of the other populations get. So there's an um, that I think really emphasizes the idea that we treat our mental health clients uh, with a disrespect. We treat our clients as if there's something wrong with them, as if they're undeserving of the care that um, that people who are not yet declared mentally ill are receiving. Because any of us can be declared many Ill, mentally ill, which is a flip of a switch. And any conversation with anybody, I can diagnose anybody with any condition and it will stick with you forever. I, any doctor can do that. Interesting. Do you, do you have a uh, definition of what would constitute as mental illness? Mm, that's I mean, a do great you... question. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I, you know, I don't have it that mental illness is a, is a constant at all. In fact, mental illness is a variable, unlike mm. like a broken arm. If you have a broken arm in Sacramento, 
you're going to have the same broken arm in if you go to Little Rock or if you go to Auckland or if you go to Tibet or if you go to, you know, Reykjavik, you're going to have a broken arm. That's what a broken arm looks like. On the other hand, if you have what's called mental illness in Sacramento and you go to even Los Angeles, it's possible that you won't be labeled with the exact same mental illness. There's no fine mm -hmm. definition of what the illness is. It's usually in the eyes of the beholder and the eyes of the diagnostician, meaning you're outside the range of what the diagnostician thinks is normal, and you fall into some sort of basket where you have said or look like you're doing some sort of things that they then label or categorize a certain way. If your thoughts are moving fast, you might be called a bipolar disorder. If you're having trouble finishing tasks, you might be called ADHD. If you're having trouble in society, like catching cues, you might be called on the spectrum. If you're having trouble with your relationships, you might be called a narcissist. If you have, you know, there's certain things that get sort of, you know, trigger people to give you a diagnosis. But the mental illness itself shifts from culture to culture. If you go to Rwanda with what you thought was a mental illness in Little Rock, it's possible that you'll be seen as a shaman and you'll actually be promoted from who you are. You know, it's so mental illness is not does not have a global definition. And for that reason and that reason alone, without a definition that's universal, you can get that mental illness is a variable and a conversation that's transformable because there's no firm definition of what mental illness is. And that's actually built on a ma more major fact, which is we don't know what normal is. We mm. have no idea what normal is. Right. We have never defined normal in a way that makes any sense. Normal is somebody who meets my definition of normal, whatever that is. I meet you. I determine that you're normal because you fall within the auspices of what I think normal is. But it's so variable and so nebulous on the edges. And without having a sense of what normal is, we would have a lot of audacity to assume that we understand what abnormal is. I always thought of mental illness as sort of like a, uh, an issue of varying degrees. Like if it's, I think it's like, if it's severe enough that it inhibits you from actually living as a, as a productive adult, for example, or is actually preventing you from doing anything that would be, um, that would be to your own good and to, or, you know, to your detriment or someone else's detriment, then it's actually a problem. But if your mental illness is, you know, controllable enough or moderate enough where it's not much of a problem, um, then, then it's, then it's more manageable. You know what, you know what I mean? Like that is because, you know, there are things about me I know that can be considered mentally ill. Like I have depression, you know, and depression, you know, for some people is crippling to the point where they are contemplating suicide, you know, seriously contemplating, like they're, you know, walking up to a bridge and thinking about jumping over the side, stuff like that. I don't get anywhere close to anything like that, mm -hmm. but it does, it makes me cranky. You know, my, my depression comes in form of, comes in forms of being like really surly and kind of angry. You know, mm -hmm. that's what depression looks like to me. Um, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's the that's the industry standard of what mental illness is. What you've described is uh -huh. what we were taught and what we're all taught as clients, as patients, as doctors to consider mental illness is that it's on a scale. Uh, my thoughts on it are that really uh, the level of this thing that you call that you sort of have depression, like depression has like succumbed onto you, like a, a cloud that you get to call yeah. a disease that you have might not be a true and honest way to look at what's here. Like you might be depressed about things that are worth being depressed about. And that's the way it is. 
Like mm-hmm. this is, if you look outside, if you look at the world around you, there's plenty of good reasons to be pretty depressed. There's plenty of good reasons to be pretty afraid. There's plenty of good reasons to be pretty anxious. The idea that it's crippling, you can make a case that, you know, some people are just like, you know, their knees are cut out from underneath them due to their mental illness, that they can't move and can't do anything. They're depressed or they're suicidal or uh, they're so anxious that they don't go out into public or you could make a case that even those people with proper conversation and guidance could uh, could rid themselves of the severity that they assume that they're taking on. Like you also get in your own depression, you have a life that actually works. You have, I saw that you have a son, you have things that make some sense for you, something, you have this podcast, you have a life that you need, you are called on, people are needing you, you're required in various situations. You take care of yourself, you have the gym that you take care of, whatever you, you need to do to keep yourself in reasonably good health, you also do that. The people who um, declare that I have a condition, like I wake up, you know, we all do. Like feelings and thoughts run through our, um, you know, run through our viewfinder every day that are pretty disempowering and very, you know, very can be overwhelming. This whole idea, you know, I get thoughts uh, that are pretty dark every single day, you know, and I say they're pretty dark only because I don't want you to think that they're as dark as they are, but they are pretty dark. They're really dark. And if I was to latch on to them, I could use them to drive myself down the rabbit hole as far as I want. I could. I could. I could. In other words, there's a part of me that relates to people who want to give up on life. And I think most of us do. Like, what the hell is this life for anyways? Why am I even here? What am I doing? When people say that, we can relate to them. It's not a simple answer. What are you doing here for the yeah. depressed population? It's difficult to assess what the value is of you know, and or why not to be nervous about the future? Why should you not be nervous about the future? That is a, a ridiculous question. You should be nervous about the future. If you're not nervous about the future, you're simply living in a, under a rock. But what value does nervousness have? What value does anxiety have? Can you rid yourself of being overwhelmed by the anxiety and the nervousness so that you can continue to live life? And that's what you're, you know, if it gets in the way of living life proper, if you call that mental illness, then every so often I get frozen. You know, every so often I become paralyzed for a few minutes or a few hours where I don't really want to do crap. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't, you know, I just want to sit down. I just, I'm not going to pick, I'm not going to clean up that pile of email. I'm not going to clean up that pile of books. I'm not going to pick my clothes up off the floor. I'm not going to, you know, so-called live life. Um, and Am I mentally ill during those times? You know, it's like mental illness doesn't really have a firm definition. And I think that's the key here. And we have a tremendous amount of agency and sovereignty to take the negative and very low vibrational, powerful, um, difficult experiences and live life anyways over the top of those or not. So I want to ask you about a question you kind of touched on this already here but i just kind of i want to really kind of bring it out into high relief here so you said that mental illness is just a conversation mm-hmm. that, that like that was in that was in your press kit that i looked over yeah. and i thought well, that's interesting now you already kind of uh explained that a little bit because you said that you know people in essence when we come down to healing we're looking for greater social bonds here and you know i can i can i can say you're correct about that because i've had people who have come to me with things that you know, that are 
pretty big in their life, ongoing issues here, and they are scared to reveal it to anybody. You know, they're a friend of mine. They're scared to reveal it to me. I've known this person like 20 years, and they're scared to reveal this to me because they're afraid of what my reaction will be. But when they do, then it's like, it's like a weight lifted off their shoulder, their shoulders, especially if it's not a negative reaction. So I think I get you with there, but maybe you have more that you want to elaborate on that. No, I, uh, the idea that mental illness is just a conversation is the idea that you can walk into a clinician and get one diagnosis and then go next door, say the same thing to another clinician and get an entirely different diagnosis. Well, go next door and then be told you're normal by the next physician and get, you know, go to a social worker and get a, get put in a group for a different diagnosis. You, the idea is because it's so variable, because there is no firm definition, of course, it's only a conversation. Mm -hmm. There is no definition that actually holds across cultures or across time and space that allows it to be anything less than simply a conversation. What you look like, how you go through the world, and how any diagnostician might label you or give you a um, a condition or a diagnosis or a syndrome uh, to strap onto yourself um, is so variable that the best we can say about it is that it's a conversation, which is the great news, by the way. The fact that it's a conversation means that it's that it's transformable. We can, we can, you know, it's being transformed anyways. There's no firm, firm roots in what we call mental illness. And because of that, we might be able to upend it entirely and get it so that the condition in Little Rock that was considered sick and, and in Rwanda, which was the same condition, which was considered like gifted, um, is something that we can apply to ourselves by altering our mindset and altering our interactions with other people in the world around us. Now, um, in your press kit, again, you, you may know that there is a connection between uh, creativity and mental illness. Mm -hmm. And you did also speak on that just kind of very briefly, you know, in passing there. Why do you think there is that connection between? I think we all know about the, you know, the stereotypical artist that has bipolar disorder and things like that, which makes their art all the more brilliant and yada, yada. Why, why do you think there is kind of like this feed between creativity and mental illness? Well, I think that, you know, as we've already kind of circled the wagons around this, the idea is, is that uh, mental illness is a communication deficiency mm -hmm. in many cases. Mental, what gets called mental illness is an inability to self-express in ways that we need to be expressed. So we're not being heard and we then take on the notion of mental illness or we're given a diagnosis of mental illness. If we're not being heard for who we are, then we feel then there's a deficiency or a block in our capacity to actually communicate with another. And that's why the cure, if you can say, or the healing, the methodology that actually um, lifts the condition comes with conversation, communication, creativity and connection. Now, if we utilize creativity as a form of self-expression, which it is, when we're being creative, you're right, we're, when we're creating art or creating music or creating dancing or singing or drama, when we're actually creating from our soul, it's another form of self-expression. And so I'm not sure that, you know, this, you know I, we all know about this idea that like what you just said about artists being bipolar and because they're bipolar, their art is even better. I'm not sure that that's all the, the only way to look at this. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the, 
I'm not even, I, again, I'm not even sure what bipolarity really is ultimately. That's like having too many experiences, too many moods, like too many capacities. Like you're able to get really happy and able to get really sad. And therefore there's something really wrong with you. I'm not sure that all that is really true. Even I, Why would someone like that need to say that there's something wrong with them? And our, it's like society's um, interest is in homogenizing the population and making sure you don't get too extreme one way or another. So um, I, you know, so the, the deficiency in self-expression or the deficiency in communication that often is associated with, um, with uh, being called mentally defective or mentally affected or mentally ill is also underlined because ultimately when we communicate effectively with these people, whether we are clinicians or friends or family, or if we are the afflicted, if we're the ones who think we have a condition, when someone communicates with us, that's when healing takes place. And it takes like, it does, it's, it's not several months. It's not, it doesn't require eating a bunch of medicine. It requires actually connecting and hearing like the people you said who come to you and say something vulnerable to you about how they're experiencing life. And if you handle it like a communicating colleague, a friend, another human, then a tremendous weight is lifted off their shoulders and yours. And you feel like you've actually provided some sort of healing for that other other human being, which you have. So it's in the world of self-expression and communication that many of these so-called mental illnesses uh, reside in. So what do you think about the uh, the world of psychiatry today? I mean, you said that you know when you went out into your own when you went out into your own practice in 2006 and beyond that, it was pretty much the same story you had known throughout your entire life, even before you became an MD. Um, but now you, you're kind of you're out there, you're venturing out. What do you think it? What do you think it is? What do you think it's like today, in your own opinion? Yeah, it's not very much different than in general public than it's ever been. It's there's still uh, plenty of people. While we were talking, have been held down and jammed full of chemical restraints for sure. Plenty of, right while we've been talking in the last half hour in this country, many people of all ages have been held down in the quiet room and given injections of chemical restraints, or been placed in physical restraints, or been given diagnoses that are ill that are ill-advised or under, underexplored, um, or are uh, taking extra medications or medications which are perpetuating the symptoms they're marketed to treat, or are being forced to do that against their will, or are being forced to live in a, in a facility against their will. This stuff is still going on. Um, you know, whether it's a residential home or an institution, an inpatient facility, a nursing home, even a jail or a prison that they are stuck in because they have been declared to be mentally ill. That stuff is still going on. On the other hand, and the good news here, rather than just all doomsday, is that there appears to be a new capacity to take into consideration what has been called alternative ways of dealing with mental illness in some facilities. I'm beginning work at a facility called Happier Living just next week, and that's actually a conventional um, institution that is national in its in its scope. And they have vetted me out and read my books and you know seen me on podcasts, and they told me that I'm aligned with who they really are as a uh, delivering facility. And now we'll see whether you know what level they're aligned with that ultimately, because they're making sure I'm a doctor for sure. And I've had to give all my certifications and right. my licenses and make sure that I can prescribe if I'm chosen to do so. 
So I had to do all that just to get into the door and the orientation. But I think what they are noticing is that, you know, there are other ways. There are therapeutic ways or there are, um, you know, ways of like detox or mindfulness or acupuncture or, you know, ways that are much less intrusive than the regular medical defaults that uh, can lead to um, uh, increasing mental health. And so I'm hoping that that's happening at a, a higher level. And that maybe a revolution is upon us. Now, the other thing is, is that psychiatry is incorporating a couple other areas, including psychedelics and including mm -hmm. um, AI. So AI and psychedelics are coming in in two different angles at the same time and, you know, massive tsunami level surges in both cases, which are really altering whatever it means that we call ourselves to be human. And we begin to start looking at other dimensionalities that... Um, that uh, the, the psychedelic in, um, world uh, provides for humans. And, and that includes, you know, with uh, plant medicines or with ketamine or with LSD or MDMA or many of the other drugs that are now being experimented with a little more. And the whole idea of what it means to be human has just uh, expanded richly and fully with having AI at our fingertips and having all the knowledge that the world has ever provided one button away for every single human. So we start looking at a new baseline of what it means to be a human in this crazy world. It's funny how a lot of this stuff kind of uh, converges with each other here, because like you just said, the use of psychedelics, I had a woman on not that long ago, and she's a psychologist, and a lot of her practice involves the use of psycho uh, psychedelics to help you know, cure or at least advance a curement of some of her, of her clients here. Now, it's you know, she's walking a tightrope, of course, because it's all brand new stuff in a lot of ways. But she has found that it's it's working wonders for a lot of people. Do you yeah. do you do you have you used psych psychedelics or do you use psychedelics? Yeah, I think psychedelics have a, a very real promise. The idea, again, that I'm concerned about is that by becoming by taking it out of the field, by taking it out of the jungle and taking it out of the you know, rainforest and, and trying to apply it to conditions and parameters that are preset in a way and giving it to the industry to put their mitts on and change the delivery systems right. and, you know, dosages and drug-drug interactions and contraindications and all the things. I think it's getting maligned a little bit. Um, uh, so I'm concerned that it won't be, that it won't be used for all the power that it can uh, provide. So can it cure depression, for instance? But that's not that's not a question that's worth taking on in my world. You know, depression is a human experience. It's not even really a condition. Can it alter the way that you look at the world so depression is either less likely or more manageable? Most definitely. You know, and yes, I do utilize it. I, I utilize, um, you know, ketamine is the one that uh, is mm -hmm. the most available and uh, readily um obtainable in most states and i feel i i you know i like uh you for the right clients i like using ketamine to give them an experience of life that when they come off the ketamine journey you know what it used to make them depressed no longer fits the round peg doesn't fit in the square hole because life at its very essence has been altered fundamentally during the journey like what is life we start getting tapped into other dimensions into eternity, into divinity, into infinity. And all of a sudden, the things that were bothering someone don't actually have the same level of gravity that they did when, when, um, 
before the journey. Gotcha, gotcha. So, and to a welcome to humanity. So, um, I mean, it's kind of implicit in the title there, welcome to humanity. In other words, we're kind of restoring what has been taken from you with a lot of these practices that you've spoken so uh, so much about that are just completely dehumanizing in very ways, like just robbing someone of their of their free will and their ability to make their own choices. Um, with welcome to humanity, I mean, I just maybe I maybe I didn't I didn't really pick up on this. I'm just trying to get a clearer picture about what uh, w- welcoming humanity would really provide for people, other than like just undoctoring them. Yeah. So welcome to humanity is more the umbrella of the whole thing, and you can find me at Dr. Fred at welcometohumanity.net. That's that's my website, and you can look at the website as well. Um, the welcome to humanity is more of sort of the overarching theme of this is just humanity, you know, including all the pain, all the confusion, all the discomfort, all the treachery, all the, um, you know, the heinous crimes that are committed elsewhere. The the idea that, you know, we are, as humans are messy and that we're, you know, that uh, things we're doing to the earth and the things we're doing to other living human beings, including other humans. Um, it's all part of being human, including, like I said, the great things, the beautiful things, the ecstatic things, the miraculous things, the wonderful things that happen in the world. And the more that we can get really in touch with what's so and be curious about the world and incorporate the world for what's really real, the better chance we have of heading in a direction that makes sense for us, that is rewarding or um, that uh, is fulfilling. And we do that by really making sure, like a GPS, a lot of people use this analogy, a GPS, in order to get to where it's going, has to know where it is. And the more that we can really, without without having to turn a blind eye, actually know what we're going through, why is the world difficult? For instance, we don't blame a log for burning in the fire. If a log gets thrown in the fire, we expect it to burn. And in some ways, we are logs in a fire. We are, you know, taking on the world that is so confusing, so challenging, so potentially overwhelming. And there's plenty of things to be afraid of. There's plenty of things to be depressed about. There's plenty of things to be concerned about. There's plenty of disarray and chaos, as uh, we know, in our everyday life. And experiencing those things, uncomfortable as they are, do not represent that there's something wrong with you. It represents that you're actually welcoming humanity and the, that more that we take on that this is a temporary experience that we're getting in our lifetime, you know, to be here on this earth, the more we can uh, make powerful decisions. And welcome to humanity seems to be the overarching theme that allows people to see that all of this is just, um, you know, sort of the smorgasbord of what it means to be a human being. We've heard lots of talk, though, that the the modern world creates complications that are pretty much unprecedented in history. Like we just came out of uh, the COVID pandemic and the lockdown that came with that and all the fear and paranoia that was associated with it. Um, in, in my lifetime and anyone else's lifetime, no matter how old they are, no one can remember such a time um, prior to like the, the, the flu pandemic of 1918, which, you know, most of the people who have been through that are not even here anyway. So there's That's hardly true. anyone, there's hardly anyone left that can actually say, oh, yes, I remember this. I mean, the closest one you can really think about is maybe the AIDS uh, scare in the early 1980s. Um, 
but then yeah like i said there's uh there's some there's some who say like this this is just this level of confusion this level of um inhumanity yeah i guess you can say that is like kind of permeating the entire world is at, is at a level now that is almost like about ready to breach the ceiling here yeah and we're we're kind of us we're kind of standing on a, on a kind of a dangerous precipice right now yeah. what do you say about that yeah i say that we've we've always been in an extremely dangerous precipice there's no time if you look at writings from two thousand years ago they're written as if they're on as the extreme precipice this does not diminish the precipice we're on now. It's always mm. been horrible. It's only got a little bit more horrible. So, mm. you know, in some ways, we're always itching forward to being on this, you know, like you said, at the ceiling or ready to explode or, you know, this should be it. That's enough to tip us over. And yeah, we and that level of concern that we're about to tip over is the is the collective fear that I'm talking about. For you to be afraid of that or to not want to live into that or to be depressed about that or to be sad or scared or disappointed about that does not make you anything wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you with looking at that and getting to those conclusions, even if they cause you to plop yourself down on the couch and not want to do anything the rest of the day. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. That means that that's the reaction you took for a future that's looking pretty bleak. Now, mm. if you really want to be a warrior about it, you can. You can step into your warrior during, you know, in your early day. Make sure you get your your meditation in. Make sure you get your physical uh, activity in. Make sure you get your celery juice in. Make sure you get your hydration in. Make sure you get your reading in. Make sure you get your writing, you know, and your journaling in. And make sure you... um you know, actually get your loving in and get your service in. And if you do all that, it's possible that you will be injected with a way of continuing to take on the world like the warrior that you are. And we're all warriors. To have to wake up into this world now and find a reason to actually get, you know, on our feet and get dressed and take care of ourselves, it takes a it takes some serious moxie to get that done. So we all deserve high fives just for getting that little bit done every single day. I think you, you might be, uh, I mean, you're a rarity for a number of reasons, but I think you're a rarity among psych, uh, psychiatric professionals who oh, also sure. actually, see, actually seem to like to uh, affirm what a lot of people actually feel. It's like, no, yeah, it, it kind of sucks out there. It's dangerous yeah. out there and things don't look, things don't look too good. And yeah. you feel bad about that? You should, because I do too. I have yeah. not heard that from very many mental health professionals. They seem like, a lot of them seem like they either, they talk around it, one, when people bring it up, or they just kind of like diminish it in some way. It's like, yeah. well, you know, it's the typical, is that, is that really how you feel? Do you really see things that way? Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, but you don't, you don't do that. You're pretty forth, you're pretty uh, forthright with it and saying, uh, no, it's, it's a, it's a shit show out there. It is. It is for sure. And, you know, and that's kind of what we're talking about with what you had mentioned earlier, the sort of clinical superiority, the idea yeah. that somehow I am insulated from feeling that way. And that yeah. you, in order to be like me, where you can pretend to be insulated, too, I've got some sort of gift that will give you the opportunity to feel less depressed in an extraordinarily depressing world. If it's an extraordinarily depressing world and you're depressed, then good for you. Like, thanks for keeping your eyes open. Mm hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's great. But uh oh, all right. Well, uh Dr. Moss or Dr. Fred. Yeah. Sorry, Dr. Fred. No worries. Um 
just going to start to wind down here. You've given us a lot to really work with here. So we have a closing tradition on the podcast where um, the guest gives kind of the closing remarks for the show. So, you know, we talk about a lot of things. We've been on close to an hour here. Not everything gets processed. But if you could leave people with one thing to remember and one thing only, what would you say it would be? Yeah, so thanks for this opportunity. I think one of the things to remember and one thing to take home is that there might be nothing wrong with you. And I think that's what we've made that clear a few times. Mm-hmm. That just because you feel horrible or just because you feel depressed or just because you someone has told you that you have a condition doesn't mean that you do. It doesn't mean that there's anything inherently wrong with you if you feel out of balance or dysfunctional or incapable or dis- or frightened or depressed or anxious or nervous or scattered or confused. These things that are called negative vibration experiences, um, it doesn't matter about all that. Like there might be nothing wrong with you and it's important to take that to the bank. Dr. Fred, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Yeah. So uh, to everyone who's listening, of course, um, I will put all the contact information in here for Dr. Fred. If you want to reach out to him, you'll find contact information for me as well. You know the story. If you've listened to enough times, you know where all that stuff is going to be. So thank you again to everyone who has listened. Thank you again to everyone who ever will listen. This is the Fitness Reborn Podcast. My name is Sean. Until next time, move forever. Peace out, y'all. Well, it says stopping. I'm not sure if it is. <laughs> yeah, it's still recording for sure. Yeah. It just gave me a notice that something... Something went wrong. I don't know why it's struggling to stop, but okay. Um, in any case, I can just deal with this later. Um, but uh, yeah, again, thank you. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I hope that was useful. Yeah, yeah. I hope I was worth your time. Yeah, it was. It was great. Good, good deal. Good deal. Yeah. So, all right. Um, well, the schedule... Um, for the release of the podcast is usually about four weeks out. So about okay. four weeks from today is when roughly speaking is when it'll come out. When it does, okay. I'll email you a recording of, yep. of the show so you can have it for yourself. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's really about, so I see that on your part here, you're not fully uploaded. Your segment is about 94% uploaded. Right. Um, we might, I might have to have you do something about that later if it doesn't yeah, fully Yeah, there's other upload. ways to recover with Riverside without me, but I understand entirely. Right, right. So, all right. But uh, thanks again for coming on. Do you have anything else for me? Nope, that's it. And we're still recording, so we haven't really stopped. That's why I can't, I can't upload 100%. Right, and that, that's part of it, too. And I don't know why it's not stopping here, but... Uh... But I think in any way, in any case, to stop it, we'll have to actually outright leave. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Well, thank all you right. so much. All right, Sean. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments. Cancel anytime. 
Every little bit helps, and I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.